This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Derek Dorch of the Diversa Group, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Now your host, Derek T. Dorch. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Thank you for joining us for this show. I'm sure everybody is still quarantined, so I hope you're being safe out there. And during the quarantine, there's been interesting discussions going on about how do we still keep government functioning? How do we still keep training function during this time of a pandemic? Everybody's talking about virtual learning, virtual training, and everything else. And so today we're going to talk about that as well. But we're going to be talking to a group who was doing this well before the pandemic and working on virtual learning in terms of a homeland security environment. Today, I have on the phone with me a number of guests from the Department of Homeland Security and the contractors working with them, as well as the U.S. Army, who are working on virtual training simulations for first responders for a program called EDGE, the Enhanced Dynamic Geosocial Environment. I've got on the line with me Milton Neiman. He's a program manager at the Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology. I've got Bob Walker. He's the EDGE program manager for a company called Coal Engineering Services. I've got Tamitha Dwyer. She's the EDGE creative director for Coal Engineering Services as well. And I've got Dr. Tamara Griffin, and she's a senior engineer at the U.S. Army's Combat Simulations Training and Technology Center. We're going to be talking about virtual training today and a program that they've developed called the First Responder Sandbox. That's a very, very interesting way to train first responders on a number of different situations that are either active shooters or other environments. Welcome to the show, gang. Thank you. Thank you. So breaking things down, I'm going to start off with Milt. Hey, Milt, you're from Department of Homeland Security. Talk to us a little bit about science and technology, your directorate, and then also talk to us about why was this important to develop this virtual training simulation? So the Science and Technology Directorate supports a lot of the Department of Homeland Security uh, components with R&D efforts, but we also support the first responders. We have a group of uh, roughly about 150 first responders that we help us use to identify areas of uh, research and development that we should uh, engage in and would be of interest and value to the first responder community. One of the things that they identified as a capability gap was virtual training. And so that's what got us on this uh, subject originally, was we started to explore it. Virtual training uh, games or tools, or what they call, for training, they call it serious gaming or virtual training tools, is extremely expensive. Uh, I was able to speak to some folks that uh, had developed Xbox and uh, developed the kind of game that we were interested in would cost in the order of 250 to 500 million dollars with all the artificial if then tree uh, decision points. Wow. Clearly outside our scope of uh, capability to, to fund that level of effort. And also the challenges that come with that are that the artificial intelligence tree, in addition to being expensive, are extremely limited in scope. You have this one set of responses you need to go left or right, but you, you can't do real free 
exchange of actions and you don't react to other person's independent actions. And people can eventually, you know, learn the roles and um, game the game, if you will. Imagine like if you're playing a virtual training game and you watch your kids and they'll be sitting there waiting for somebody to spawn, knowing that they're going to arrive at this location and then shoot them. So we didn't want to do that. And so that's why we developed the first responder sandbox. Tammy, since you represent the U.S. Army um, and looking at combat simulations, I know the military has been looking at simulation for quite some time. How did you guys get involved in this project? That's a great question. So several years ago, many years ago, Milton and I met, met at the uh, ISIC conference, which is uh, put on in Orlando, where we talk about training systems and, and uh, the military is, is a big attendee of that conference. So we got together and we talked about some of the work that we had been d- doing up until then in virtual environments. And Milt was interested in investing in the work that we've done because it was the whole idea was that the Army puts in uh, resources and DHS puts in resources and we're able to share the outcome. And it was a great business model. And it was one that, that served us quite well because we both were able to get training capabilities out of it with a fraction of the investment. In terms of what you guys have been doing in terms of simulations, what were you thinking about in terms of the requirements to say, listen, we're going to get this out either to first responders or military members. What needs to be done in a virtual environment to make it real enough to be the good training that they need, that they can respond in the real world? This is Milt again. So Tammy and the Army already had some uh, prototype work that they had done and training scenarios in EDGE, but wasn't directly applicable to first responder experience. So what we had to do is we uh, gathered probably about 30 or 40 first responders from fire, law, EMS, and we had uh, met over several days to identify what the requirements were that would be needed in a tool like this for them to be able to train in it and to be able to train and, and meet the needs of their jobs. So we spent several days working out scenarios and identifying what were all of the tasks that they needed to do to be able to do their job. So we needed to make sure that we developed a tool that would replicate their real world environments that they could log into. If you're a police officer, you log in as a police officer avatar and you respond in that environment and you have the tools and capabilities in that virtual environment that you would have in the real world. And that's part of that open sandbox thing. This is tactics agnostic. So we wanted to make sure that we developed a tool that would allow people to train with the tools and the tactics that they have in their own environment. Yeah, and if you don't mind me jumping in, this is Tammy. Um, One of the things that, that I think all of the people on this team, and I'll definitely mention coal engineering, um, is, is excellent at. And Milt was, was great at pulling together the law enforcement, the tactical folks, the, the boots on the ground folks, and uh, firefighters, uh, incident command, everybody. He was able to pull them all into a room and get them to talk through what kind of stimulus they needed to make the decisions that they make. And then Cole Engineering was able to uh, parse that into game thinking. So in other words, um, if something was going to require a significant investment, for example, uh, firemen, feel the door to see if it's hot inside. Well, obviously we can't do that, but we can give other indicators. So 
we we searched through the requirements that we were given by the people that that milk brought along and um and we kind of parsed that into game code and that's what what tabitha and, and bob were involved in and then we came back and and we balanced it against the resources we had but the the key for any virtual environment is that those things that you make um, high fidelity are going to actually support your training tasks so a lot of people want to have very high fidelity graphics um, audio things like that but you don't want to make huge in investments just to make an environment real in some cases you can train just as well in a lower fidelity in environment this is pretty high fidelity and and again that was based on the fact that that these people made, needed high high fidelity graphics in order to make their specific decisions right so bob and tabitha give us some background about co-engineering services and you guys background kind of working on kind of gaming and virtual environment um, or building these environments out. Okay, uh, I'll go first, Tabs. Uh, this is Bob Walker. Uh, Coal Engineering is a software development and integration company. Um, we develop high quality modeling and simulation products and serious games for the U.S. government. We also do several integration efforts, again, for the U.S. government. For this effort, we had been working with the Army on game-related technologies and exploring and researching different avenues for how to do improved training through virtual environments. We developed a product that was used by the Army mobile training teams, um, and from that discussion, that's how Milk and Tammy got, as they mentioned, in touch with each other, and that's where the DHS aspect of it came through. My background is uh, I'm an engineer. Uh, retired from the Air Force Reserves, and uh, I've been working in the modeling and simulation and gaming business for way longer than I care to remember. Tabitha, you were the creative director of Foucault Engineering. Talk to us about you getting involved in um, building this virtual world. I mean, it's pretty elaborate uh, for this training for first responders. Right, thanks. Uh, yeah, so Tabitha Dwyer, I'm the creative director on Edge. My background, um, I have a computer science degree from UCF and have always been interested in merging the two worlds of simulation and training and commercial video games. So my job as the creative director is I set in on those requirements meetings uh, with the first responders the first time we were going out to develop the first responder sandbox. The sandbox concept is something that I'm familiar with from commercial video gaming one of the most popular games on the market today is Grand Theft Auto V. The whole Grand Theft Auto series is a sandbox game. It gives you the tools and the physics of the world and then lets you kind of play in it however you see fit. Um, and that's the approach that we wanted to take with this first responder game was to let people exercise live training, but in a virtual environment by playing themselves. So my job as creative director is to understand game development, understand game concepts, and programming, but to keep the vision of the game aligned so that it not only looks and plays great, but it's meeting our training requirements with our customers. Outstanding. We gotta take a quick break, but when I come back, I wanna talk a little bit more about the actual gameplay and the actual sandbox concept, and then what are some of the features and other areas of the game. We're talking about virtual training, and we're talking about the EDGE program, the Enhanced Dynamic Geosocial Environment that's called the First Responder Sandbox. It's been built by Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate with work from uh, Coal Engineering Services 
and in collaboration with the U.S. Army Combat Simulations Training and Technology Center. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we come back. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. We've been having an interesting conversation about virtual training. It's been a big conversation right now as we've been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. But it has been something that's been going on in our government for quite some time. We've got some people from Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology Directorate, the U.S. Army, and their contractor, Coal Engineering Services, on the line with us right now talking about how they built a program called EDGE, Enhanced Dynamic Geosocial Environment, and a first responder sandbox, which is a virtual training simulation for first responders. One good question that I have for you guys is, and this kind of goes maybe for uh, maybe Tammy or, um, or, or Milt, why was virtual training a priority uh, well before now? I mean, I know it's a priority now. I mean, we're talking about everything virtual now, but you guys have been working on this for years. Why was this a, a priority for the U.S. government uh, well before this time period? Well, this is uh, Milton Nittman again. So, again, our, our group of first responders identified virtual training as a uh, capability gap. One of the, one of the problems is uh, whenever there's a financial strain or a pinch, training is one of the first things to go. So they wanted something that they could use to um, enhance their training ability and, and, and make it a little more cost effective. This tool is not developed or intended to ever replace live or hands-on training. Its goal is to be able to be used as an enhancement or uh, a complement to that training. But large-scale exercises, because this tool is developed for, uh, you can do it in small teams or up to 40 or 50 people and train in a cross-discipline environment. So this tool is designed to be in larger exercises and to train tactically, but more effectively, we hope, strategically. To do that in live exercises is time-consuming, costly, and difficult to put on. So the benefits to the virtual training are is it's not as expensive, and you can uh, repeat the training. It's repeatable, and so you can identify issues, problems, challenges, reset, and run through it again. So the fact that it, it's trainable, I mean, you can repeat your training is of great value. If you have a large-scale exercise and you start it and something goes wrong, you can't stop it. So it just plays out the way it is. Also, um, you know, that this tool allows for people to do cross-discipline training. There's not a lot of cross-discipline training going on between fire, law, and EMS. And we are finding in a lot of these events where we have complex coordinated attacks, school shootings and all of these other unfortunate incidents that fire and law and EMS are working together in a real world scenario much more frequently with not much training. So this allows them the opportunity to train in the same environment and to do it repeatedly. You know, Tammy, speaking from the military standpoint, you guys have been doing this for quite some time. What have you found um, that has been the benefit of the virtual training especially from the Army standpoint? Well, yeah, like you said, this is something the Army's been doing for quite a while. And what we find is that nothing really beats live training. But live training is extremely expensive, very complex, um, requires a lot of logistics and cost and expenditures for things like bullets. 
So many times what we'll do is we'll um, augment live training with virtual training. So you've done several iterations of the, of the same type of training well before you ever go to a live event. This optimizes your use of live training and it, it allows you to have more iterations. So in an event like what we're training here, what we're trying to do is quickly give whoever the trainee is experience because we know experience saves lives. So the more somebody has iterations of what works and what doesn't work, that's experience. And when you have an inexperienced person going into a life-threatening situation, that's um, dangerous. When you have a, an experienced person that has those iterations under their belt, they have a much higher rate of survivability. Does that make sense? Definitely makes sense without question. You know, when, when, when you're looking at the first responder sandbox, and I know Tabitha mentioned that kind of the whole sandbox concept and kind of Grand Theft Auto that a lot of people know about, where you kind of work around the world and everything else. And of course, at first look, you think this is just a video game. What's the difference between what you guys are doing in your sandbox and what somebody would see in just a video game like a Grand Theft Auto? What, what, what's the unique feature and a unique difference? So let, let me answer really briefly, and then I'd like to turn it over to Tabitha to go into some of the details of, of, of what the tool provides. Oh, this is, I'm sorry, this is Milt Neneman. It's, it's a training objective, right? So we started at the beginning of this, before we even started to develop it, is we identified what our training objectives were, and we developed the requirements to be able to meet that training objective. And then it was Tabitha's job, Bob's job, co-engineering's job, to take those requirements and turn that into a tool that would then be able to, you would be able to get into that game, train in that environment, and meet your training objectives. It's, it's not a game, and as a single player, you're, you're by yourself. There's no value to it. But this is developed as a training tool to learn a training objective and test on instructions and education that you have already been provided. Hey, yeah. can I jump in also? This is Tammy Griffith again. Another thing that, that we kind of um, alluded to but haven't really dived into is the fact that this started out um, after the Mumbai attacks. Mm -hmm. And the Mumbai attacks were a complex coordinated attack by a small group of people across soft targets. The DHS determined that that was something that we were ill-prepared for in this country. And so they set that up as, as their, one of their highest priorities. And that was the, the driver to having a soft target like a hotel that allowed people to train for that kind of complex coordinated attack. And that kind of lends us directly into Tabitha and Bob talking about how Cole uh, created the sandbox to support that. Well, I know the first responder sandbox, the, the first iteration was the hotel scenario, as you mentioned, Tammy. You know, for all of us who follow kind of terrorism attacks, that's one of the probably the scariest scenarios, right, outside of 9-11 because of the simplicity of the attack. Although it was complex, it was, you know, 10, 12 guys who, who were able to cause havoc uh, in India. Tabitha and, and Bob, you guys had the marching orders to build out this hotel scenario. How did you go about doing that? We did. So the process, what I always like to do first is go visit with the people. So we did an on-site visit in Sacramento with um, Fire Law EMS that Milt had set up for us. 
we actually visited and took video and pictures of a hotel that we were going to use for reference so that our art direction, uh, our art team could go back and replicate our environment to start with. Um, so you guys were using a real hotel as a model. We use a real hotel as a model, <laughs> name excluded. <laughs> and it's two spec for that area, which is cool for the guys that work in that area. But it was designed to be a generic hotel environment that has conference rooms, a ballroom, weight rooms, and 26 floors of rooms uh, so that anybody, you know, could treat this as, you know, a hotel and not their hotel. And, and I saw, I had, I had the pleasure of kind of going through the demo with you guys. These environments that you're building, um, as, and I think Milt was alluding to this, is that this really has to be instructor-based in terms of bringing the other people in and creating a scenario in an environment. Is that, is that correct? Uh, you right. can't just kind of walk in there as a single player and just kind of, because you'll just be roaming around by yourself. You need the other pieces, the other people, the other role players in order to make it a full scenario. And somebody has to build that out. Absolutely correct. So uh, you were asking what differentiates um, what we've built to a commercial video game. And I'm flattered <laughs> that we think it's on par with a commercial video game because that was the goal, to look and play like something you would play on a PC, Xbox, or PlayStation, but with the training intent. And one of the biggest differences is access. We only allow access to people that have been vetted by Department of Homeland Security. Um, and like you've said, the game does nothing on its own. It has no single player scenario. So you can't play against and learn anything without instruction. It's more of an exercise tool for a group of people to get together in a multiplayer environment and train together. Right. You know, but what's going on right now, but, and we'll just kind of do this before we go to the break. You know, I know we had the hotel scenario, and, and I also saw that there's a school scenario. There are a number of different maybe complex attacks, right? Um, of course, those have been some of the top two that we've been worried about. But what other scenarios have you guys been thinking about planning out based off, and I'm assuming that this is based off of real-world scenarios to help prepare our first responders. What other scenarios are we looking at in the future? So right now we have... Uh, a school that has been ready to roll out. We've already done the hotel and we're working on a uh, house of worship as well. But within any of those environments, you can set up any type of training scenario you want because the avatars are human driven. If you, you use like we call the exercise cell and those people are generally the bad guys and they, set up whatever kind of scenario they want, like an active shooter. You can set up a hostage negotiation situation, suicide, hmm. bomb threats, whatever you want. And then you have your responders respond to the in situation that you create using the tactics that they would do in real life. That's excellent right there because it sounds as if it has a lot of flexibility in terms of what an instructor from a police department, fire department, or from whatever department can build out for their people. That, that was the intent from the beginning. We had three tenets when we started this. One is we wanted to make the tool accessible. So that's why it, you can play it on your uh, laptop computer and it can be accessed from the cloud environment. At least the school can. Uh, the, it's web enabled for the hotel version. But the software is free to use for all first responder agencies and schools. The other tenet that we 
wanted was cross-discipline. We wanted fire, law, EMS to be able to train together in the same environment. And the third tenet was it needed to be tactics agnostic. People, local jurisdictions needed to be able to train within this environment using their own tactics, techniques, and procedures. Right, right. We've been talking to the people from Department of Homeland Security. We've been talking to people from the U.S. Army and co-engineering. And we've been talking about virtual training, an environment called EDGE, the Enhanced Dynamic Geo-Social Environment, the First Responder Sandbox. There's been some virtual training uh, that's being built right now for first responders to begin to train about how to respond effectively to a number of complex situations, whether it be active shooter, whether it be fire situations, hostage situations, or whatever could possibly be dreamed up in terms of maybe a, a, a bad situation to deal with. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. We've been talking about virtual training. Of course, it's become important with the pandemic as we go virtual with everything. But this has been something that's been going on in our government for quite some time. Whether it be Department of Homeland Security, whether it be our U.S. military under the U.S. Army and other branches, we've been doing virtual training for quite some time in order to save money, but also put our responders into unique situations to help them think strategically as well as tactically. So we're talking about this today with people from Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Army, and also Cole Engineering that was a contractor who helped build one of these virtual environments. Tabitha, you were the creative director on this kind of project right here. I had a chance to go through the school demo with you in terms of kind of seeing this environment. Unique environment as it relates to, you had a chance to have the different roles of not only the first responders, but you also had the teachers in there. You had different civilians in there, your students and everything else. Talk to us about the dynamic of kind of building this environment and, and making it as real as I saw uh, uh, in terms of, you know, the whole, whether it be the gymnasium, the cafeteria, the library, uh, all the other kind of features of the school demo. Right. Yeah. This one was actually pretty tough mentally and emotionally to develop. You know, a lot of us that are working on the project are parents of school age children. Uh, so the requirements gathering for this one was tough because we spent time with, uh, you know, a parent from Sandy Hook that lost her child. We spent time listening to tapes and watching video from Columbine, 911 calls but it was all necessary to understand what is happening in these situations and how can we best design a training game to help save lives. So that's how it started. Uh, from there, it was a matter of adapting a lot of the uh, gameplay elements and roles that we had already built for the hotel and applying them to the school. And that's where school staff, teachers, administrators, and students came into play. Because as we had seen in so many of these incidents, the first responders were actually the people that were in the school. So it was important to have actual teachers and staff be the front lines of this simulation and training environment, and then work to the point where there's communication and cooperation between the first responders that arrive and the staff of the school that's in place. And Tabitha, let me just chime in real quick. 
I, I was pretty amazed that this was not a baseline school. This, this was a very, very well built out school with multi-levels, uh, a number of different areas, a very, very large high school. Did you guys do the same thing with the hotel where you went into a real school environment and then tried to work it off of that? We went to a school in, um, and walked through. We received the uh, floor plans, and we were given permission to go through the school, photograph it, videotape it, so we could replicate the school. But it was to be able to create a uh, any school USA type environment. Sure, sure. And the neat thing is, and this is Tammy again, the neat thing is that this was a school that they use in New Jersey currently for live training. And, and so it had all those elements that you would want to apply to training. Um, you know, it has front desk, it has, you can lock or not lock the doors. Um, so it has a lot of flexibility to support. Like Milt said, the, the any town school, because some schools don't have locks and some schools aren't able to um, use an intercom, for example. Mm -hmm. So the, this school was intended to be kind of a, a foundation upon which you could do a wide range of things, but it was built on an actual school that is used for training in New Jersey today. Yeah, it's the easiest way to get an environment established is to work off something real rather than having right. to create it from scratch because we already had, whether it was blueprints or CAD, um, you know, files that we could, uh, computer-aided drawing files that we could work off of to have our artists get started. Um, of course, as a part of the process, we elaborate, expand, and take liberties um, with some of that. So, you know, we designed the rooms to be effective for training, not necessarily to be exact to the environment that we were um, drawing inspiration from. You know, let's talk about the characters real quick. And, and, and let's even kind of talk about, I, I was actually surprised when, I, when we were going through the simulation, is that you can have everybody from the dispatchers all the way down to the firefighters, the EMT, and also the law enforcement officers, as well as a number of different civilians. How many different characters and how many different people can be, and I, and, and I think we talked about you know, 40 or 50 can be in the environment at one point in time, but how many different characters can be in this environment operating at one point in time? Well, you've gone through the roles that we have. We do support dispatch, unified command, um, all of the first responders from fire, EMS, law enforcement, even the school resource officer on campus, plus all of the school personnel. And then the students are uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, they're controlled by the game. Although in our case, it was very important for teacher staff and first responders to be able to order them around, uh, tell them to follow me, to stay in place. So we have a system uh, built in where you can give commands to everybody in your room, everybody in your line of sight to keep the children safe. That's kind of the, the main job. Between the number of players, two or three dozen human role players involved, uh, as well as hundreds of students that are in the school, uh, it actually can be quite chaotic. But you, we've talked about scenarios. I often get asked, um, how many scenarios do we support? And the answer is really as many as you can think of. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes more scenarios than I even intended, you know, from a design standpoint. And that's a benefit of the sandbox environment is you can do things that I hadn't even thought of. So you don't, you don't go into the game and load a scenario. You talk about it ahead of time, plan it out, and then role play it in the environment. And that's what the, the instructors are, are really for. They're the catalyst to getting a scenario started. 
And I would like to take a moment to mention that we've been talking a lot about school shootings, but this is really an emergency incident trainer for first responders and school staff. It could be as simple as a small fire in the library or, uh, you know, that can be handled with just a regular fire drill. It could be just a non-custodial parent in the school, and it can escalate all the way up into an armed attack on the school. And, and so the great part about this, Tabitha, is that you can create these civilian roles, right? A parent or a student or something of that sort, and they could be in crisis in a number of different ways. And so you can run out a, a wide range of scenarios that can spin out of control. That's it exactly, right? And we and that's the instructors or role players logging in as a as a civilian and walking to the front desk in the office and having a conversation with one of the participants or logging in as a student. Uh, I could have myself and someone else from the instruction team log in as students and get into a fight in the hallway, you know, an argumentative mm-hmm. battle over, you know, my boyfriend. And that can escalate and cause teachers to come out of their room and try to defuse the situation, which could even escalate farther. Well, you know, the, the one thing I noticed is, is with the players um, was the voice ability, right? That you guys could either get on the intercom. Some people had radios, but also too, if two characters are close to each other, they can have full out conversations. Tell us about those features. Right. Communication was really stressed highly by both the first responders that we talked to and our customers. To replicate the environment, you know, I hear my customers often refer to our game not as a first-person shooter, but as a first-person thinker. So much of what happens in here is communication and lack of communication (laughs) that can be identified. So it was important for us to get not only the police and fire radios, the dispatch, 911 calls, um, but things like the PA in the school, everybody having a cell phone that can dial 911, and to have the ability to talk to people around you. And that's one of the hardest things that I struggle with at the very beginning of my training audience classes is to forget that you're talking into a microphone, forget that you're staring just at a screen. You have to let yourself go and suspend disbelief that you're in this environment and can talk to somebody like you would talk to them in the real world. I find sometimes they'll stand face to face and not really say anything. And I'm like, well, what's on your mind? And I would, and they would say, well, I would tell them, drop your weapon, drop it. And I would say, say that, (laughs) you know, you have to get into the role and be yourself. And that's a little difficult to overcome, but that's what we spend, you know, the first 15 minutes to half an hour of training doing is, is letting go of those inhibitions and, and getting in touch with the technology. I want to keep on talking about this when we uh, come back after this quick break. We're talking about virtual training. We're talking about something that Department of Homeland Security is now utilizing for first responders called EDGE. It's the Enhanced Dynamic Geosocial Environment called the First Responder Sandbox, where you can create a number of different situations in a virtual training simulation in order to help your first responders deal with various incidents. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. If you had just joined us, you need to go back to the previous segments because we've been having some good conversations about virtual training. As we probably know, this may be the new norm as we deal with the pandemic and make sure that our first responders can still be prepared to deal with various incidents 
virtual training will probably become more important in our homeland security environment as well as our military environments and everything else. We're talking about this right now with some of the great people from Department of Homeland Security, Co-Engineering Services, who was the contractor who built this virtual training, and also the U.S. Army from the Combat Simulations and Training and Technology Center. We've been talking about what's called EDGE, the Enhanced Dynamic Geosocial Environment, the First Responder Sandbox, a virtual training simulation tool for first responders. Tabitha, as a creative director, you know, when we went through the demo, I saw a couple of things that really kind of caught my interest. One was the medical piece that if somebody got hurt, you can also see their pulse and you, and I think in our demo that we were going on, one of the guys um, had expired, unfortunately, but it, it, we were trying to figure out, well, how did this happen? You've guys built in some unique features into the program that a person, that an EMT or responder can see the pulse and the lifeline and try to work on something to revive them. Tell us more about that. Right. We were lucky enough to get additional funding from uh, DHS to add the additional roles of Unified Command Medical and Fire into the simulation. And it's a huge leap forward for the medical play than what was in the hotel. Uh, you can get RPM, which is respiration, perfusion, and mental state. Um, but now our wounds actually worsen. So, you know, there's a big campaign for stop the bleeding. And that's important in our simulation because, you know, gunshot wounds can bleed out quickly. Uh, and you're, and you're, the scenario that you were talking about, I was actually playing an EMS over a body uh, who had a gunshot wound to the leg and the pulse was very low and I was applying a tourniquet. And by the time I was done, he had expired, which was unfortunate. But we used the after action review tool to go back and see you know, did the tourniquet not work or was I just too late and we were able to resolve that? But that's the kind of thing that makes, you know, the force protection and the um, rescue task force so important now in this training environment is to get to those that are injured, stop the bleeding and then get them triaged. You know, with this whole situation in terms of adding these features in here, I know requirements can be difficult and also costly. Are the costs coming down to develop these kind of environments and will this become more prevalent in our society or, or where do we think this is going? Well, with our project, the costs continue to decrease with each new scenario, environment or whatever that we add because we're building on top of what already exists. Uh, we use the Unreal Engine 4, which is the base engine for Fortnite, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. Um, and all of the great strides that they make developing Fortnite, get rolled back into the baseline for us to use. So we get stuff from commercial world to help us out. We have art assets and programming and design knowledge from previous games that each time we build on top of this, it gets cheaper and cheaper. You know, Milt and, and Tammy, what, what's, what's your thoughts from the Homeland Security side and the military side in terms of one, where is this going? Has this had good feedback from the first responders when you've kind of, you know, went to different environments? And also, too, and this may go to all of you, how easy is this to use? Because sometimes, you know, uh, our first responders, you know, we do have a game generation, but we also have an older generation who's not used to kind of using uh, maybe more kind of a, a video game environment. What's the ease of use or ease of usability for people in different environments? This is uh, Milton Miniman again. So I'm pretty much the beta test for that. I'm... Um 
in that older generation. And the last video game that I played was um, Pac-Man. So I can play this game and you can play it with um, really with just the mouse and one index finger. You don't need to be that, that agile. It generally takes about maybe 30 minutes for people to become functionally operational to run the tool as a student. Where this tool is gonna be going is um, I, I think that we're at the forefront of modeling and simulation, virtual training for uh, law enforcement, first responders, fire, EMS, and it will continue to go there to continue to grow, but there are challenges. Um, probably the biggest uh, barrier to adoption is to be able to get the instructors comfortable to a point where they can use the virtual training tool. We've had some pretty good success with that. One of the other initiatives that we're rolling out is a, a mobile train the trainers team, a two-day training team for first responders to learn how to use the tool. Unfortunately, that got derailed a little bit with the uh, COVID pandemic, but when that settles down, we'll be starting that back up. And you know, when, you say, when you say get the instructor comfortable, is, is it more kind of getting them comfortable because they're so used to doing real world training, they're not used to being in this virtual environment. Is, is that what the, the, the challenge is? I, I think that's part of it. Also, there's a part where um, there is a certain technical knowledge that you need to be able to manage the scenario itself. Tabitha makes it look quite easy and it is not difficult, but it does require a certain amount of training. So to be able to run the scenarios and manage people, set things up, run the tool itself requires a certain level of, of training. Uh, some people, uh, by the time they reach the stage of instructor, sometimes they're reluctant to embrace new training techniques. So right. that's a hurdle that we are addressing. One thing, uh, and I know time is getting a little bit short, but I, there's three things I would like to do. Is that one, I would like Tabitha to address some of the features of the tool, uh, like the less lethal capabilities, the firefighting, you know, that we can start and put out fires. And then uh, maybe Bob can talk a little bit about how to access the tool, unless somebody wants to elaborate on what I just said. I do have one point I want to add that I, it surprised me um, but at this point that we haven't mentioned it. This training, this tool is absolutely free to any law enforcement, firefighter, paramedic, incident command, anybody in, in law enforcement or, um, sorry, first responders. And, and I don't think we had mentioned that yet. So I wanted to make sure that that was uh, made explicitly clear. Now that's a good mention. And, 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 how, and, and how would they get access? Is that, is that they need to contact your office, uh, the Homeland Security S&T, or how would they get access to this? Yeah, I'll take that. They can uh, reach out to, they can go through our website and request an account. Um, Coal Engineering has set up a website uh, for Department of Homeland Security to do this. It's at CESI edgetraining.com. So folks can go out there, they can request accounts uh, for either the hotel scenario or the school scenario or both. Um, and then as Tabitha mentioned, they get vetted. It goes through DHS for approval to make sure that they're authorized to get it. If they're not eligible for the free version, if they're a commercial entity, um, there are options to license the technology. That's the easiest way. Go through the website. If they want to reach out, there's a help button. They can send us an email and 
inquire further. And we are running out of time. Tabitha, I'm going to let you kind of close it out with maybe some of these features and everything else. You've got about 60 seconds. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, I just wanted to make a quick point that, you know, we're training people to make good decisions in these environments. I'm not training anybody how to use their weapon. I'm not training anybody how to drive their vehicle. They know how to do that. Um, we want them to make sound decisions to save lives. Outstanding. Outstanding. Hey, Bob, you want to make any last comments? Um, no, that, that's it. As far as the future goes, we've done a lot of talking about U.S. first responders and schools and um, things like that, but this product uh, is also available to international uh, okay. users, international first responders. Uh, we're currently working with several different countries to get the edge technology to them as well. Tammy, five final comments. Yeah, real quick comment. I, I'd love to point out that we're also looking at building out um, a house of worship for uh, additional training locations. Mm-hmm. Milt, last round. Um, okay, no, I just really want to thank uh, Tammy from the Army. We wouldn't uh, have been able to get anywhere where we are right now without uh, the Army. And all of the work that uh, Cole's done, they've been absolutely phenomenal in, uh, in their delivery of products for us. Well, I just want to thank each and every one of you for, for what you guys are doing. I think I went through the simulation. I think it's very, very valuable. I hope all the first responders will jump on the website and, and get an account and start using it. They can use it virtually on, over the cloud and other areas. So please make sure you take a look at it. I think this is definitely a great stepping uh, stone in terms of what's going on with virtual training for our first responders. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. We'll be back again next week. You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 1 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Welcome to Mile 5033, the first mile of the first road trip with you and your newborn. Thankfully, your Hyundai Tucson has an available 10.25-inch infotainment screen so you can seek out the soothing sounds of nature to keep your kid calm, or whatever else babies are listening to these days. And with available wireless device charging, your phone will stay powered up so you can ask the internet why the baby just made that weird gurgling sound at mile 5062. Or that scrunchy face at mile 5103. Because when it comes to navigating the new roads in life, we're thinking of every mile. The new Hyundai Tucson. It's your journey. Test drive the new Tucson at your nearest Hyundai dealer or learn more at HyundaiUSA.com. Before Avid Exchange, managing accounts payable took too much time and effort. Coding and reviewing invoices, tracking down approvals, the list goes on. But with Avid Exchange, your AP is automated, so you can review and approve invoices anytime, anywhere. You'll gain greater visibility and control into your workflow, giving you time to focus on more important things. Experience the power of change. Avid Exchange. Learn more at avidexchange.com. That's avidexchange.com.